Hey everyone, welcome back to People Are Complicated, a podcast produced by Cloverleaf where we talk about all the ways that people are complicated at work and how you can turn those moments of tension into deeper relationships and work you're really proud of. I am your host, Kirsten Moorfield, co-founder of Cloverleaf, and I'm very excited today to have Pam Jeffords with me on the podcast. Everyone say hi, Pam. <laughs> Pam, thanks for joining us. Uh, Pam and I actually met a few weeks back, and we were talking about DE&I. So today we're going to focus a lot on inclusion. What is inclusion? And I just really love Pam's take on this topic, and it's her labor of love. It's her life's work. So Pam, can you share a little bit with us, introduce yourself to folks, and talk about what in your career got you to this point where you focus on DE&I? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so. I think I fell into it like a lot of uh, leaders did, which is it wasn't a planned uh, uh, path forward. But I was in sales for a long time. Most of my career I spent leading large sales organizations. And I was in the technology industry, so I was often the only woman at the table in a sales Amen. leadership position. But, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was asked to lead the women at group, whatever it was. And I did so, I was super excited to do it. I was always energetic around it. And then I realized it was probably around 2010 where we realized that women weren't following us. And, mm. and so they would say, no offense, Pam, but I don't want to do what you did. I don't want to take the path that you took. And so at that point, we realized there was actually less women in leadership than when we had started this effort. I started my career in the late 80s. Wow. And it was pretty tough. I, I think um, it's the moment that I stopped calling myself a woman leader and referred to myself instead as a trailblazer because when you're a leader, people have to follow you. And mm -hmm. no one was following this. Mm -hmm. So I really did challenge whenever we would call ourselves leaders and say, are we really creating a path that other people can follow? And mm -hmm. so I had an opportunity in um, 2012 to join Mercer as a partner at Mercer, leading their research around when women thrive, businesses thrive with the World Economic Forum. And that's how I fell into it. I wasn't anticipating doing it, but I realized that we just weren't seeing that next generation of women uh, wanting to do the same things that we did to, mm. to reach leadership positions, and we had to change. Oh my gosh, I want to come back to that, but real quick so people have context, can you explain what, what is it that you do now? What kinds of companies are you working with? What, you know, I know you're very data-driven, so just talk a little bit about what you do and what your goals are. Yes, so right now I work with fairly large corporations. Most of them are at least you know, 5,000 employees are larger because mm -hmm. we do take a data-driven approach. Not to say the approach can't work with smaller sized companies. I've worked with companies as small as 200 employees. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do now is we help them understand what is their gut telling them. And a lot of times people will tell me, Pam, I think this is happening. I think that we're promoting women um, when they're overqualified and men when they're ready. You know, I'm not saying we promote men when they're not ready. It's just that we promote them at the right time and we're promoting women way after they're ready. Mm -hmm. And we're promoting people of color at lower rates than white people. Or we're not, our, our LGBTQ population is not as engaged or happy. And so they have all these hypotheses or gut feelings and we come in and we help validate that with the data. So mm -hmm. we do a lot of um, data analytics around their workflow trends. Who are you hiring? Who are you promoting? Who's leaving by demographic groups? We mm -hmm. do virtual focus groups where we put a thousand people together on a technology and we ask demographic dimensions of their identity across the world. And so a lot of times companies don't even know 
what the identity is of all their employees around the world because it's not legal to ask in your HR uh, systems. Mm. In our focus groups, we can ask. Mm. So we can ask dimensions of uh, identity, we can ask sexual orientation, we can ask veteran status, we can ask disability status, and then you ask other questions like, how satisfied are you? Would you refer a friend? Are you getting the feedback that you need? And for the first time, we're able to tell global companies, here's the demographics of your workforce around the world, race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. And we're able to let them know if there's any gaps in experience between those demographic groups. And so we often say, you know, technology is now enabling us to do this. It wasn't that it was hard to do before. We couldn't do it before. Right. And now with the technologies like Cloverleaf and others, we can actually do these things. So it's exciting. And again, we're validating what most companies feel in their gut already. Mm -hmm. But as we know, we don't tend to move forward until we have the data. And, and the, you showed me on a call, you showed me that tool that you use. What's that tool you use for the big thousand person phone call? What's it called? Yes, it's called Remesh. And uh, a lot of consulting firms use Remesh. They have it uh, private labeled as something else. Mm -hmm. um, we just refer to it as Remesh. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you put a thousand people on at the same time and they can, in a, an anonymous way. Mm -hmm. And I say anonymous uh, for those techies out there because we don't actually track your answers to your IP address. Mm -hmm. So it truly isn't just confidential, it's anonymous. And for the first time, people are able to tell you really what's on their mind mm -hmm. without fear of, uh, of uh, any retaliation and they're able to do it sharing dimensions of their identity that they've never shared before mm -hmm. or they've never been asked. And it's also amazing to me when you showed me that tool, how it aggregates all the data right away. So you can immediately drill into like, okay, our veterans are experiencing disengagement around recognition. And you just know that right away because like what 300 people immediately input, you know? So I, I think that that cool. So that tool is so cool. So I just, um, Props to Remesh. Everyone should, should get it if you're yes. trying to figure out this kind of stuff. Or you should work with Pam, actually, if you're trying to figure out this stuff. Um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is really cool. Okay, so what are the goals that you have when you work with these organizations? Because I know once you have the data, that's really only the starting point. Then you go and you form councils and you do a lot more work with them. So talk more about that. Right, so the first thing we do, when, when you have a data-driven approach and you use a tool like Remesh or, or others, then what it allows you to do is get away from this what about-ism is what we call it, mm -hmm. which is says, what about this group? What about this group? What about this group? Mm -hmm. And often when you're forming a council or any type of committee to help understand what's going on in your workforce, you're making a lot of assumptions or you're saying, well, let's start with this group and then we'll get to that group. And typically you start with the largest population, which in the past has been white, highly educated women. Mm. And that's why a lot of programs in the past started with women because they would say, you know, well, that's 50% of the workforce and white women don't have barriers, as much barriers to access to education. They're in the workforce at the rate that they should be. So let's just start there. Mm. Um, the problem is that didn't work, right? For 25 years, we've been doing that. So now it's let the data tell us where the biggest gaps are in your organization, even if it's the smallest population. So I think it was actually Melinda Gates who said, I'm going to flip it instead of looking at the largest population, I'm going to look at the smallest marginalized population, which some might say was black women in STEM. Mm. And if we can uncover the gaps in their experience then and then help everyone, then really all boats will rise. Mm -hmm. But if you're just addressing the gaps, let's say white women, all boats are not going to, in fact, no boats have risen, right? Mm -hmm. Because we haven't made the progress that we need. So when we take the data and go to these councils, 
we're not asking them, what do you think we should work on? We're taking basically the voice of the employees in and saying, here's what your employees are saying. So I just did one recently with a very large organization and they had their list of what they thought they should work on. And we asked the employees, um, you know, would you refer a friend? And it was high 80s, like 85, 90% said they would refer a friend. So like, this is excellent. A lot of companies will stop right there and say, gosh, everything's great. Mm -hmm. But then we kept asking questions. Are you receiving feedback? Yes, super high, great. Well, what's your career path here? We just dropped down across the board. Yeah. Everybody said, well, I don't know what my next job is. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you can isolate real time. A lot of people don't understand what their career path is, but there was one group who did, and that was our white heterosexual men. Mm -hmm. They knew what their career path was because they had a lot of mentors. They had people that were in leadership positions mm -hmm. that they were just going to follow behind. Mm -hmm. But our people of color, our LGBTQ and our women were saying, I don't know what my career path mm -hmm. is and I'm considering leaving in the next six years. But interestingly, they said, but I would still refer. Yeah. Wow. Because it was a great experience, right? Wow. And so what you do is when the data tells you of this dislink that says, this is amazing and I would refer my friend into this job, but I'm going to go somewhere else to get that next career progression. Now I've isolated. And so, and we actually isolated the level at which that was happening. Right. So now instead of the council having a hundred great ideas that they have to figure out which one to go and tackle, they're going to tackle that mm -hmm. one. How do we create this uh, career path? And that you see a lot right now, especially as um, we have the great resignation. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies are, are doing a lot of headhunting within or um, companies. So if your employees are getting calls from recruiters and they're still giving you a high employee engagement score, it means that we're not calling our own people. Mm. And so if you have a low employee engagement score and they're leaving the company, you go, all right, I kind of right. get it. But when you have such a high employee engagement score and they're still leaving the company, it means you're not doing enough for your internal mobility, internal recruiting, career pathing. So we use data to help focus on what's actually happening in the organization. We, we have hypotheses that we're certainly trying to validate, mm -hmm. but we're also letting the employees in a very scalable way tell us what's going That's on. That's amazing. Awesome. Okay, so Pam, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is that in your career, you were a trailblazer and you looked back after so like 10 years, let's say, and you realized, oh my gosh, I am a trailblazer, not a leader because no women are following me. And they're saying to me, Pam, I don't want to take your path. Why? What was behind that? Talk more about that. Well, I mean, but also to age myself, right? I'm 55. Um, when I started my career, email was honestly used to tell you donuts were on the fourth floor and somebody left their car lights on in the parking lot. That I wish email. that's all and it was used for now. I really wish that was all it was used for now. <laughs> and we didn't have laptops. Yeah. We had literally still floppy disks, yeah. right? And so there was no ability to work remote. There was no ability to work on the weekends. And I had a daughter at the time, and so um, I have four kids now, but I had one when I started um, working at this one company, and she would literally sleep under my desk yeah. because you had to work. If, if you were trying to close the books, you had to work all night. I started in finance and then moved into sales. And people just don't understand that. So when people get up and ask me, Pam, tell me how you got here, I will share things that are still um, like important and valid. I might say, well, when I was making choices, here's how I decided how to make choices. 
but I wasn't going to tell them the choices that I was making because they just aren't the same right. anymore. So telling someone that you had to pull an all-nighter with your child under your desk, it's like, well, that's fun over a glass of wine, but it's not relevant today because we're not in that space, yeah. right? We're not literally handing floppy disks to each other. Um, so I, I just remind women of my age, you know, those of us that are in our 50s and even late 40s, that the stories of how we got to where we were not only aren't relevant today, they are just flat out not inspiring. Right. And, and that's a hard thing to swallow, mm -hmm. but if we really want this next generation to, to follow us, to actually be more represented in leadership than we were, we have to stop telling these old stories of walking to the movies both you know both ways mm -hmm. uphill, you know and paying five cents right um that's the equivalent of what we're telling people and it's just unfortunately not helpful but it's really not inspiring yeah. and so um so i really do want to be a leader by saying here's your path it's not my mm -hmm. path here's your path and let's help create paths that again don't necessarily follow mm -hmm. me um and and so again i i, I just recommend to people Give them stories about how you made decisions, not the decisions you made, because again, they just it's it's not relevant. Right. Why do you think it is that you you were able to trailblaze and others weren't trailblazing behind you? Like why weren't others following the trail? I did a simile, mm -hmm. right? And so I used to think when I would uh, go out and uh, with with a lot of my male colleagues, and they would say, "Gosh, Pam, I forget you're a woman." I go, "Yes." I mean, that was the goal, right? And I am very big in stature, right? I'm six feet tall. I'm broad shoulders. Um, played sports in college, so I looked and felt and and I assimilated in yeah. as one of them. And I think that is regardless of your race, your sexual orientation, your gender, if you can assimilate into what leadership looks like today, which is still 80% white cisgender heterosexual mm -hmm. men in the US um, and in Europe, then you're gonna mm. make it, right? And so I think those of us who did assimilate in, now there were some who didn't, but uh, assimilated and still made it, but those were the mm. rare. Most of the people that you meet that did assimilate in back in the 90s and early 2000s, we had some shared commonalities, which I said would fall more towards those masculine mm. traits of athletes, care about sports, yeah. I play golf, yeah. you know. Uh, I mean, again, I, I hesitate to say any of that because I would not tell this next generation that they have to do it because the other thing it left behind is it left behind the guys that don't right. assimilate in. So when I do focus groups, it's really, you know, you hear a lot of sad stories but you also hear stories from guys who, who have to pretend that they're a mm -hmm. certain way, and, um, and and I say, how does that feel? And that it's they're yeah. exhausted. They're exhausted because, you know, sometimes they don't expect it for from a woman. They're if you say I don't play golf, they're like, oh, of course, you know, or you don't go to the sports games. But if you're a guy and you don't play golf and you don't go to sports games, they're definitely left out. And and they're also again trying hard. It's mentally, it's exhausting. And I don't think that, there, that there's a dislink between the anxiety, depression, and sleeplessness that we're seeing with our white men. It's right. on the rise. It's huge right now. And most organizations will tell you that medication for anxiety, depression, and sleeplessness is mm -hmm. up. I don't think that those two things are separate. I think men having to assimilate into this vision of yeah. leadership oh is painful. Gosh. It's yeah. exhausting. Um, and... And so again, I, I think that we have to change the vision of what a leader mm -hmm. looks like 
So, so again, I hesitate to say this, why I think I mm -hmm. made it, because I certainly don't think this next generation should. It's so interesting, Pam, because I know so much of your work is actually around inclusion, which is not so much, you know, hey, what color are, is the skin of your leadership? It, it leads to that, right? And the goal is that, but you don't come at it like, well, you just need to start promoting 50% people of color, right? You know, you're, you actually come at it from what are your unconscious biases and what, how do you really truly create inclusion? And I love the way that you approach it. And I wanted to talk more about that, but I've, it's so interesting hearing that story of you made it on assimilating, on not actually being included for who you really are. Although it sounds like you really do like golf and sports. I was gonna say, I think, you know, when, I, when you talk about assimilation, um, it is the opposite. So assimilation mm -hmm. is fitting in, right? Mm -hmm. That's the definition. Inclusion, belonging, is the opposite right. of assimilation right. and fitting in. So when companies come to me, and some even have assimilation plans, mm -hmm. like literally it will say, here's your assimilation plan. Um, they're, they're basically saying, and many leaders honestly feel this way, I don't care what your gender is, I don't care what your race is, I don't care what your sexual orientation is, as long as you come in and do it exactly oh this way. Come in and oh act gosh. like us, right? And so again, that is exhausting yeah. for people that don't act right. like us, right? So I think for when I look at inclusion we're look and belonging, right? We're looking to see is can you be mm. yourself at work the same as mm -hmm. you're at home. And I, I say it like that because I think we have to start talking in more clear language as opposed to, you know, bring your mm -hmm. whole self to work, right? So a lot of people will say, well, inclusion is about bringing your whole self to work. And I have people who say, well, I don't want to bring mm -hmm. my whole self to work. Like, I actually don't want to talk about my religion or I want to come to work and mm -hmm. just do my job. And so it's really not about can you bring, do, do you have to bring right. everything from home into work? Right. That's your choice. It's about are you the, able to be the same person at home as you are at work? And the more that we can start talking very clear terms as opposed to these broad inclusion and belonging, what does that mean? What are mm -hmm. the behaviors? What are people experiencing? And to me, that's where our focus is with our clients is just very common terms. Will I refer a friend to work here? Am I getting feedback? Um, do I get to act the same at work as I do at home? And then we look across all dimensions of identity and then say, mm -hmm. where are your gaps? And so it really allows, I think everybody knew inclusion was the, the ultimate goal um, rather than any other diversity or even equity or belonging. And it, but we didn't know how to measure it. You can measure diversity, it's, it's fact, right. it's representation. And you can, for the most mm -hmm. part, measure equity, right? Who's getting access to certain jobs, who's mm -hmm. getting paid what, who's getting mm -hmm. uh, promoted, who's leaving, who's get, getting hired. But we just could never measure inclusion mm -hmm. until now. And now mm -hmm. we can measure it. And with, the, with technologies, you can look and say, let me ask a question, are you receiving feedback? And if there's a gap with this population is saying, heck yeah, I'm receiving a lot of feedback, and this population is saying, I'm not really receiving feedback. Or we ask a second question, is the feedback relevant and actionable? And a lot of times you'll see women will say, I'm receiving a lot of feedback, mm -hmm. but it's not relevant. We'll see our people of color, especially our black population after the George Floyd murder. Um, we could see that they were saying, I'm receiving 
very low quantity of feedback. I'm not receiving it at all. And, and when you go to the people managers and say, our data is saying that our black population's not getting the quantity of feedback they were in the past, they'd be like, I, I'm not. I'm not giving black people feedback right now at all. I'm mm. nervous, I'm scared. Until this whole race thing blows over, I'm not gonna give our black employees feedback. And you have to say, well, first, it's not gonna blow over. <laughs> it's here, we gotta address what's been going on. But second, that's right. not okay. Because how are they supposed to yeah. do their job if you're not giving this group feedback? And you have to really hit them with the data to say, it's not okay that you're not giving a certain population feedback. That actually it's limiting is their career, their ability and, to grow. And so again, our gut, oh, it, it was it's just horrific. And this was across multiple industries, multiple companies. And, and so you have to go back to the people managers with the data and say, here's the word count that our black associates are getting. Here's the word count that our white associates are getting. It's just simply less word count. They are simply mm. getting less feedback. And that's when the managers are like, okay, I get it, but now how do I overcome my fear mm -hmm. of saying the wrong things? So give them training on how do you give effective feedback? How do you give um, timely and frequent feedback? So we're, we're really mm -hmm. back to the basics. Um, and I think sometimes my clients are a little surprised that it's something as basic as right. giving and receiving feedback or making eye contact or saying hello. They're looking for me to tell them, you need to do this over here. And it's something that's they've never heard of before. And it's like, no, you just kind of have to go back to the basics of make mm -hmm. eye contact, mm -hmm. listen, um, and give and receive feedback equitably mm -hmm. across the organization. So that's what inclusion really is. And we focus on inclusive behaviors for your organization. And then you just simply measure mm -hmm. those behaviors. So, uh, and over time, again, you wanna close any gaps, no matter what the population is, you wanna close those gaps. And then over time, you will start to see again, that diversity um, growing and inclusion and belonging and right. all the great things. There's so much in there that's fascinating to me because I love how you focus not on, um, hey, we need to you know create a group of uh, what, what are they called? Employee resource groups. Like we don't need to do all that. Which I actually think there's a time and a place, and those are really good. I'm not. I'm. I'm not against them. But I love how you tie it to the work. Like, no, give them. Give everyone equal amounts of meaningful work, and allow them to be who they are and succeed in that work, and equip them and advocate for all of your people equally, which includes critical feedback, recognition, like all of the normal things about you know, good leadership and, um, and, and, and relationships at work. Right. Um, so I, I really appreciate that approach that you have. I also want to dig into how you, I know that you form these councils. We've mentioned that in this podcast, you form these councils after you have the data and you choose some areas to focus. These are high level leaders, cross-functional decision makers, inside of these large organizations and you focus on you know very practical tactical things like data and okay here is an area we need to focus there's this word count of feedback given to people of color versus white people right um but you also in every single time you meet with these councils you you actually very effectively get a little bit vulnerable and get focused on um you, you put people in scenarios where they can start to realize some of this invisible diversity, this internal inclusion. Like, 
um, you know, a, a bit deeper than what we talked about, like, hey, I don't like sports, right? <laughs> but, but letting people see, hey, there are these ways that you operate where you assume people are like you, and it turns out they're not. So can you talk a little bit more about, about that? What do you have? I'd actually love to hear some stories, but first I'd love to hear you share just like, what's your, what's your strategy and what are your tactics in getting it, these high level leaders to focus on this more introspective yeah. form of inclusion? Yeah, and, and I think it's a great, great question. I think uh, a lot of CEOs naturally <laughs> get what they're doing, but they right. don't know how to explain it. So, um, so when you go to a leader who their employees will say, this person's very inclusive, and then you say, great, what are they doing to be inclusive? Well, I mean, you just know. You just know they care. And you're like, okay. And then you go to the leader. I was able to go to the World Economic Forum in 2020, before, right before COVID, and I was able to ask a lot of leaders who have been deemed inclusive, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Right? <laughs> and they're like, I have no idea. So a lot of times, there, it's mm -hmm. just naturally in them that they're inclusive. But you get to what is the behavior, and 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 what it tends to be is they communicate very well to mm -hmm. a variety of audiences. And so, if you think about the basics of communication, and we have five generations in the workforce and a lot of diversity, it isn't about communicating one thing, um, something to where all generations understand it. It's about communicating the same wow. thing five different ways. And good leaders understand that. And they understand that if I'm going to say something, that some people are going to care about it from the head. I just have to make practical mm -hmm. sense, and then they're going to believe me. And then some people care about the emotional side of it. I care about the heart. So I'm going to hit them emotionally with the exact same thing I just mm -hmm. said from a head standpoint. Some people only care about the wallet. What's going to happen to my wallet? And some people, it's their gut, right? So we've got head, heart, wallet, gut. And good leaders kind of focus on all of those and what they're really doing is understanding that some people need different things in order mm -hmm. to be inspired and they need either data they need practicality they need to feel it um, or just needs to make sense in their gut and so when you boil that down to again what are the behaviors that leaders are doing that make people feel included if they can't articulate them and help the next level of leaders understand it, then that's where they start to realize that they might be doing the right things, but they aren't saying them and demonstrating them. And, and I'll give you an example. Good leaders really listen. And they'll say, I want every one of my managers, everybody needs to listen. That's a behavior that's really important. And you say, great. Um, how are you letting your mid-level managers, let's say a manager with 10 people, how are, how are they supposed to listen? Well, I mean, I, and they'll tell mm. him I role model it all the time. Great. H how do you role model listening? Well, you know, I hold town halls. You're like, great. What else do you do? Well, I walk the floors. I get out of my office. I walk the floors. I talk to people. Great. Um, I, I send out emails and communication. Great. So now, do you want every first line manager? Is the first line manager with five direct reports? Are they supposed to hold a town hall? No. Do you want them to host a focus group? No. If they walk the halls, would anybody actually care? Right? So, so all of a sudden they realized that they were able to listen and it was, but it was symbolic acts, right? It was things that a first line manager can't do. So I kept pressing them. So how are you role modeling listening when a first line <laughs> manager can't do any of that? 
And that's when they're like, <laughs> actually, they say curse words. But but we're recording. But they'll say that's their, that's their that's when they realize, holy cow, we're not helping mid-level managers be inclusive because we haven't explained what yeah. let's just take listening is. So all of a sudden you have to say, what does it mean to listen if you're a first line manager with five direct reports? Mm -hmm. And we literally spell it out. Here's what it means to listen. Make eye contact, ask, ask questions, repeat back what you heard. Let your people, let your uh, team create the agenda for your one-on-one. -on -one. Host your one-on-one, -on -one, yeah. which some people yeah. don't. You know, in practice, they they might say they have a policy that you have a one-on-one -on -one every month, and then in practice, yeah. you find out they're not right. But have those one-on-ones. Mm -hmm. Let's say you got to have a monthly. Then allow your employees to bring the agenda to you, maybe every other meeting instead of you always creating the agenda. Those are the kind of tactics of listening at a first-line manager, and so that's really the humbling moment for the leaders to realize that. They actually can't describe what they've been doing to be inclusive, um, and and we have to get to that point. So we do a lot of work, just saying, let's write down what does it mean, because because inclusion is not a behavior. Inclusion mm -hmm. is an aspirational goal, and it's a feeling someone else gets from a behavior mm -hmm. you have done or not done. Let's start talking about this behavior. So again, I go back to what I said earlier. Let's just use simple language, right? So let's just say we want people to be able to be the same at home and at work. We want everybody to receive the feedback that they need equitably across the organization. We want to listen, which means we give our employees time and space to tell us what's going on. We ask questions. We make eye contact. Mm -hmm. We say hello. I, I had one client where we got the feedback from the employees that they just weren't being acknowledged in the morning. They just weren't saying hello. And so we had to say, okay, it's as basic as saying hi to, you know, and making eye contact. And leaders kind of, again, they roll their eyes sometimes. They go, really? That's all people want? Yeah. Sometimes it's just looking at me, saying hello, acknowledging me. You don't even have to know everybody's name. Just saying hello. So it's just sometimes it's a reminder that those small little things mean a lot to people. And there's actually some research out there that if a leader doesn't make eye contact with someone or doesn't acknowledge them, they can actually feel physically sick all day. Now, if I don't acknowledge yeah. you or make eye contact, it doesn't matter. So it's not everyone doing this, but but there are certain things that leaders need to do that, again, can, can really create this inclusive environment. And then it's about taking those behaviors and bringing them all the way down to that first line manager and saying, what does that mean? What are the yeah. actual behaviors that yeah. we need to do? Yeah, a lot of, I, I've actually quoted you in sales pitches, so thank you for being so wise and helping me sell my own product, um, where you talk about the skill building that creates a culture of inclusion, like listening, the skill of listening, the skill of empathy, the skill of giving feedback, and, and also learning to do those in ways that is effective to who your who your audience is right like the number one message of communicate or the one number one lesson of communication is um know your audience <laughs> and so if i'm a heart-driven person and i'm talking to a head-driven person and i'm telling them people's lives are gonna be changed it's gonna be beautiful we'll be crying it'll be amazing they're thinking this is baloney <laughs> 
<laughs> what are we actually doing here? You know, not that they don't care about people, but it's like no comprendo does, doesn't compute. And I, I really appreciate how you have done so much work to use macro data to drill down to these micro skills and then translate it into simple language for every level so that you create ultimately a really beautiful culture of inclusion that then results in the representation all throughout the organization. So great work. I, I really am a big fan of everything that you're doing. I'm so glad to have had you on this podcast. Pam, I usually do this at the very beginning, but we just got right into such juicy topics that I skipped it. But I would love for you to share with our audience a time in your life when people were complicated and, and you learned how to use that for good. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I will put in a plug for technology because all the great things that you said, you know, that we, the work that we're doing around consulting, um, I always just say you mm -hmm. can't sustain this work without technologies like Cloverleaf because it is, it is a requirement. Mm -hmm. it's, it's why we all have Fitbits. It's why we all have, you know, um, smartwatches. Is it's not because we don't know right. what to do. It's that we have to be reminded to do it. So, um, so I, I love these nudges because while I, I'm going to tell you a story about a, a leader I worked with that was super complicated, but I knew him really well, and I and I finally was able to understand him. <laughs> and had we had Cloverleaf back in the '90s, I would have figured it out right. earlier. But um, he was a very um, tough boss to all of us, and it was at the beginning it was so hard to receive mm -hmm. the feedback that he was giving because he would do it in just such direct ways um, and not good. I'm certainly not um, trying to have anyone emulate him because I, we would walk, we, again, we ran sales organizations was the background, and he would walk through a, a group and he would look at a low-performing sales rep and he would just look at me and he'd go, and into the guy's face would go, why is this guy still here? You know, and you're like, <gasps> I mean, and I mean, it was brutal, right? And then, and, and he would say that kind of direct things. Uh, yeah. This was before HR was really, you know, uh, alive and well. Um, and so you could say those things. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to hate that. I was like, I'm mm -hmm. just never going to be like him mm -hmm. because he was just so mean, right? But when I all of a sudden, and, and never will I ever be like that, but what I realized though is why did I keep working mm -hmm. for him? Why did everyone keep working for him? Because he had this following. We, we followed him for, to different companies. He was that, but it was because he was transparent. And so I had to figure out what was that behavior. And it was, you never worried about yeah. where you stood with him. You never went home and goes, gosh, I wonder if he's angry with me today, or I wonder if he's happy with my work. You 100%, 24-7 knew he was happy. He was, you're awesome. You know, let's go to lunch. If he was angry, you knew it. If he thought you should mm -hmm. be fired, he would say, why are you still here? So even though that delivery was really bad, I took away the transparency. You never want your employees mm. not knowing where they stand, right? They, they need to understand when are, when are they doing a good job? When do they need uh, opportunity areas? When are you not happy? And so that's the behavior that I took away that I kept was the transparency around how people were doing and in, in, uh, in their performance. And again, had we had something like Cloverleaf that would have probably said, hey, and the guy's name was Richard, um, and Richard is always transparent. I would have, yeah. it wouldn't have taken me 15 years to realize that it was the transparency that we value, yeah. not the jerk behavior, right? Um, so so I do, I do, again, love technologies 
because I do think most people mm-hmm. wake up and want to do good. Most people want to mm-hmm. give me what I need to succeed, just as I want to give them what they to succeed. But I love those daily reminders that say, hey, don't forget, you know, this person isn't inspired by the heart. Give them bullet points. Give them data. This person likes mm-hmm. small talk. This person doesn't like small talk. Those kind of reminders, again, the majority of us would do them if we can remember right. that that's what they want and if right. we're reminded at that moment, right? And I, I'm a firm believer that I don't even like to call them unconscious biases because they're just, again, it's our brains are just lazy. And I can't think about, I've got 25 yeah. call, people on calls today. Right. I can't think about every single person, but if a technology can and say, hey, Pam, don't forget you're meeting with these people mm-hmm. and they like agendas, they like mm-hmm. um, uh, stories, they do like small talk. Those are the kind of nudges that, again, I'm a big believer most people would mm-hmm. honor those nudges, uh, honor those uh, requests. If yeah. They- well, thanks for yeah. selling Cloverly for me here on our podcast. <laughs> um, I, I, I am, of course I agree. That's why we built it. And I think that you make such a beautiful point, which is it's not even that, you know, that it, that we have these judgments. It's that we are, our brains are lazy. Like we expect people to think and act the way that we do. And if we understand it, doesn't, don't they understand it? And if I, if I receive information that way, doesn't everyone, and we don't even have that thought because it's so subconscious. We're just used to the way that we see the world and operate. Well, and I would, and I would, I would, cha- I would challenge as well that it's not just that mm. that's how we, so that's what we were taught. Like, yeah. again, I go back to the people that were, you know, started their careers in the eighties and the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, we were taught that treat people like you want to be treated. And it, it's still in a lot yeah. of companies value statements today. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have to unlearn that because it isn't treat everybody the way you want to be treated. It mm-hmm. is absolutely to treat them the way they want to be treated and give them the information they need. So I, I think it's, it is unlearning some things that we were mm-hmm. well, in, it was well intentioned for us to, uh, to, to think that way. And we, we're actually having to use technology to unlearn some of that and really challenge some of those, again, deeply held assumptions yeah. that everybody wants to be treated like me. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I've never thought about it that way, but that's a really, really good point. Um, I also want to call out in your story about Richard that he was so, so difficult, and he did things that, you know, if if anybody today was like, why are you still here? Like, oh my gosh, the, 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 like, the cancel culture would come against that, right? Um, but I think that what's really interesting, Pam, and says a lot about you is that you really dug into, but there is something good here. Like he is still obviously very valuable, maybe unhealthy in certain ways, but still very valuable and has a lot to offer. And I just think that's so beautiful and something that if, if we could all really believe that, like, hey, Richard's showing up today doing his best with what he's got. And nobody's really coming into this saying, man, I'm against Pam today and I just want to make her day horrible. If we could all just come into work with that mentality, we would be able to see so much more of each other's strengths and, and take things less personally and do, be less exhausted and 
do really meaningful work. So I appreciate that story. Thank you so much for sharing it. I also just so appreciate the work that you are doing. I could talk to you for hours when you were talking about women not wanting to follow your path. I had so many thoughts about venture capital and my world too. And so I just really appreciate everything that you shared with us today, Pam. Thank you so very much. And Oh, my honor. Um, and truly, the work you're doing is amazing. And so how can people find out more about what you're doing? How can they find you? How could they even enlist your services if they're also if their organization is struggling with this? Where can people follow you to learn from you, but also contact you to, to work with you? Absolutely. I would say mm -hmm. LinkedIn is always the easiest for me. I actually do uh, respond in LinkedIn. So it's just Pam Jefford, super easy to find on LinkedIn and uh, would love to talk to you. I do enjoy this conversation. And as I'm ending, you know, hopefully five, six years uh, left in reti till retirement, I, I do mm -hmm. feel like we need to share mm -hmm. more of these promising practices. Um, I, I always tell people, you know, you have common practices you have some proven practices that are out there. And if they're common practices around DNI, I would say don't do them. Uh, and, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, Pam, 92% of companies are doing this, yeah. I say stop doing that because it's not working. Um, so I really do focus in on the promising practices that are showing good success, that, that we, do, we don't have the data maybe yet to show that it's going to be able to be sustained. But I really would challenge people to think about what are some promising practices that we can implement to really sustain and to help people who, again, are really well-intentioned, but just don't quite have the tools yet to, That's awesome. to be as inclusive. All as right, everyone, do. follow Pam on LinkedIn so you can keep learning from her. Also, we will, we will drop the link for your LinkedIn and for your website and anything else uh, in the show notes. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you so much, Pam Jeffords, and make sure to tune in next time to People Are Complicated.